The scripture reading for today is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked he shall cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. And against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Thank you. All right. You guys grab a seat. Good to see everybody. How are we doing? Good. Uh, I didn't know Hope is Alive was going to be here. This is amazing. I love you guys. I love you guys so much. Every time I see you, I just want to open field tackle one of you. That's like, that's my highest form of love and affection. I just want to blindside one of you guys in love, in gospel love. All right. So uh, it's, it's great to be here. I'm excited about diving into this. I am bringing a little bit of trauma into the room today. It was a hard day yesterday. My, uh, my 15-year-old son told me that he did not want to go deer hunting with me this fall. I know. What's wrong with him? So instead of doing intercession for the needs of the nations, we're going to pray for that at the end of service. It's like, I feel like such a failure as a father. And I, I don't know, does that mean that I should give him to another family and let them get a shot? What does that mean? I understand that I have taken him hunting many times where he almost froze to death, but what does that have to do with it? All right, I just need to get that off my chest. Um, let's go ahead and pray, and if you got a Bible, you can start finding 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, Father, thanks for the, the gift that we can come in here, we can laugh together, 
We can cry together. We can lift up our voices in gratitude. We can lift up our voices in desperation. Thank you that you hear our prayers. And you're here as the one that makes this gathering special. Like that is the very definitive mark of the church that makes it unique and beautiful and special that the resurrected living Christ is among us by his spirit. And I pray today that our faith would grow in response to that. I pray that you would help us to have elevated expectations for you to speak to us and form us and move us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come as our teacher to not just give us intellectual knowledge, but to help us to know, to love, to treasure, to obey, and to follow Jesus more closely. Pray these things in and through Jesus, our Savior. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, we're going to do a couple of things today. I want to give you just a little bit of the literary context as we dive into this book. We're going to be walking through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and we're going to be throwing in some of the Psalms. Like 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, this is inspired history. It's not just normal history, it's inspired history in which God the Holy Spirit is highlighting these things around the life of the nation of Israel, in particular around the life of this guy named David. What happens in this narrative is that we then get these Psalms that show us the inner life of David, right? So this is going to be a beautiful series for us to walk through in hopes that our heads and our hearts can be more connected with the gospel. And what I want to do is just take a couple of minutes because I think this will help the beginning of 1 Samuel make sense to you. I want to give you a little bit of the backgrounds in the preceding books, right? 1 Samuel, like all the books of the Bible, is not an unrelated chunk. Like this book that the Holy Spirit inspired that was written through the hands of multiple different authors in multiple languages over like literally millennia, this book is not God's compilation of his greatest hits. Meaning, this is not just random stuff where you can look at heroes and try to be like them and look at bad guys and try to avoid their mistakes. This book is God's self-disclosure to you. And God's self-disclosure to you finds its climax in the person and work of Jesus. So this book, all 66 books that are a part of it, with poetry and apocalyptic books, with all kinds of historic narratives, with genealogies, with weird books of law that make you scratch your head and try to figure out why is that in the Bible. This whole book, though really diverse, is unified in that the whole thing is marching towards Jesus, lifting up Jesus, and offering to us the hope that is found in Jesus. And this is true for the books that lead up to First and Second Samuel. There's two crazy books that precede what we're going to study. The first is the book of Ruth. Now, the book of Ruth is really a weird book. It's, in some ways, it, it kind of reads like a romance novel. It's kind of weird. It's, it's kind of uncomfortable in a couple of parts. But the book of Ruth opens up with devastation in the land of Israel. And here's what you got to get. God told this guy named Abraham this really big promise. And here was the promise. God said, Abraham, you're going to have offspring. To use the biblical language, you're going to have seed. And your seed or offspring is going to multiply and grow and bring blessing, the benediction of God or the blessing of God to all the nations of the earth. 
So God promised, Abraham, you're going to have this line, and in your line there's going to be multiplication, and through your line there's going to be this amazing shift from the cursing of God to the blessing of God for all the nations. And God tells Abraham that as long as his offspring dwell in the land in obedience to God, they're not just going to have multiplication of seed offspring, but they're going to have the fruitfulness of the land, seed to eat. Are you guys with me? Now, here's what happens at the beginning of the book of Ruth. We're introduced to a land in famine. There is no seed to eat. And what happens is this one family with a woman named Naomi and her husband, this one family, they leave the land of Israel. It's a reverse exodus. They flee from the land of promise and blessing to the land of God's enemies in Moab. And in the land of Moab, Naomi's husband dies, leaves her a widow, and her two sons take wives from the enemies of God, which God strictly forbid the Israelites from doing. So here we are, instead of the land being full of fruit and life and grain and seed, there's famine, and the people of God, as represented by Naomi and her clan, they leave and go to the enemies of God, and in that land, death and destruction ensues. Naomi's husband dies, her sons take wives from the land of Moab, and then more tragedy hits. Naomi's two sons die, leaving her daughter-in-law's widows, and Naomi, which means pleasant, goes back to the land of Israel and changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. Now, here's what you got to get. Like, that's something about God's story. That's something about your story. That's something that's really pastoral. It's not just something that's theoretical. Here's what God is saying. We're always going to be prone to trying to find satisfaction, life, and flourishing outside of God and his promises. And where that will leave us is Mara, bitter. Chasing after money and career and sex and family and the gods of whatever it is that the people around us are worshiping doesn't lead to flourishing, it leads to destruction. And so this book opens really dark and then something crazy happens. Naomi has this daughter-in-law named Ruth and Ruth converts to the faith of Abraham. She begins to hope in the promise that God made to Abraham. She returns to Israel, leaving her land, leaving her ancestors' gods. She goes to Israel, and in the land of Israel, God works this amazing, amazing plan of redemption for Naomi and her family. He brings a kinsman redeemer named Boab, Boaz, and in Boaz, here's what happens. It's amazing. God keeps his promise to Abraham that Abraham's offspring would have a seed, and God keeps his promise to Abraham's offspring that they would have seed to eat. It's a reversal story. And here's why this matters when we open up 1 Samuel chapter 1. The book of Ruth is a sacred genealogy in which God says, Ruth is going to have a grandson one day whose name is going to be David and he's going to be a link in God's chain of redemption for the world. So listen, you read the book of Ruth and you're like, oh, at the end, there's this David that's coming and hope builds. You're like, here's what you're supposed to feel at the end of Ruth. You're like, man, despite our sin, despite the crazy things that God's God's people do, like God keeps his promises. 
He is going to bring about this seed, and that seed is going to bring about blessing. Now, the other book you've got to think about when we open up First and Second Samuel is the book of Judges. The book of Judges is the hardest R in the entire Bible, right? This book is rated R. It's full of chaos and destruction. Like, this book would make the worst VBS in the history of the world, right? You would get totally sued if you did this in your kid's church. It's just a chaotic, awful, terrible book. Like, I, I don't know if there's any other parents that are in, like, their 40s, and you have these fond memories of movies that you watched in the 80s that were PG, and then you have teenagers, and you're like, oh, it's okay, this is a PG, you can watch this, this is a great movie, and then you watch it, and it's just the worst thing you've ever seen. Like, an 80s PG is like, it's like a 2019 hard R. That's the book of Judges. And the point of all the graphic sin and the sexual sin and the violence and the chaos, the point of all that in Judges is this. Here's what it says, the last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So here's what's happening. Instead of Israel acting like a kingdom where God is king and there's unity in worship, there's ethics that reflect the kingdom of God, there's purity and devotion and sacrifice, everybody's acting like their own king and chaos ensues. So here's what happens today as we open up 1 Samuel chapter 1. The books that lead up to this sacred history are telling us, hey man, we need to be reading this book for God to keep his promise to bring a seed to Abraham and God's promise to bring a king to Israel that would reflect the heart of God. And with those two expectations, the book opens not in a palace. It doesn't open up with the powerful and the mighty 1 Samuel chapter 1 opens up with a woman named Hannah who's enduring the pain of infertility. Here's what it says. Look at 1 Samuel 1 starting in verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now listen, in their cultural moment, Hannah's pain certainly includes the pain of a woman in a culture where women were not valued as they should rightly be valued as whole people. Ancient cultures were infamous for often reducing women to their ability to bear children. That was part of the pain. To live in their cultural moment was to be reduced to your ability to be fruitful. It was also the pain of living in a culture where if you didn't have kids that were going to take care of you in your old age, you would be destitute. But the pain of those two things pales in comparison to the core pain Hannah's feeling. It's the pain of not knowing if God's going to keep that promise to raise up an offspring to bring his blessing to the world. Hannah's pain is the pain of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, who were all connected to God's promises to Abraham. Sarah is longing for the joy of a baby, but she's also longing for the joy of God's covenant promise to be brought into the world. Now look what happens in verse 10. She was deeply distressed. 
She prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now here's what happens. The Bible tells us that God remembers Hannah. He opens Hannah's womb to conceive a child. And I I just want to say, like, it's not really the point of this whole narrative, but it applies. We have so many families in our church that are going through the pain of infertility. So many families. Like, even reading this story is, like, very difficult for some of us. And I just want to say, there's no new covenant promise that every follower of Jesus is going to have a child if that's the longing of their heart. That's not a promise, But here's the promise that you can take to the bank in Jesus. Just as God remembers Hannah and sees her weeping and hears her prayers, God remembers you. He sees you. And because of what God's going to do in this story to bring an offspring named David in the midst of Abraham's line, that offspring David is going to lead to an offspring named Jesus, who in him All of you, no matter what dreams have not come true for you, all of you have a future and a hope and confidence in God that God hears you and he sees you and he remembers you. Now, here's what's happening in this story. Hannah's baby is going to be a guy named Samuel. And Samuel's going to be really important for the rest of our journey through the life of David. Samuel is a forerunner. Right? He's a forerunner. Samuel is a prophet a lot like John the Baptist in the New Testament. John the Baptist in the New Testament is the last of the Old Covenant prophets, and he's prophesying, make way for a king and a kingdom, right? Well, that's what Samuel is doing in the Old Testament to point to Jesus. Samuel is a kingmaker. Samuel is going to anoint King David in the fullness of time. He's going to prepare the way for the king. He's going to be a judge in Israel And here's what you got to get. What Hannah is going to do in response to God's gift of this baby Samuel is Hannah is going to write some of the best theology in the entire Old Testament. Hannah is going to sing a song of worship as a prophet and as a theologian. And her song of worship is going to frame up the entire story of King David. And frankly, listen, she's going to frame up in just 10 verses the whole story of the Bible. And you got to get this as we read her song together. This is not just the story of the Bible, but if you understand what she's saying and you bring it into your life, if you own this as your story, it's what redeems and redefines your story in light of the person and work of Jesus. So if you're a Christian today, Hannah's song is a reminder that whatever it is that you brought into this room, your addictions and your anxiety and your depression and your struggling marriage or your successes, your pride that you need to repent from or your brokenness that you need healing in, Hannah's song is going to lift up your eyes and say, hey, listen, remember the story. Remember the story because the story has power to set your feet on a rock instead of quicksand. And if you're not a Christian today, or if you've walked away from Jesus and you're trying to figure out what you believe, this lady that lived like 3,000 plus years ago named Hannah is going to invite you to see something that has the power to redefine the very essence of who you are as a person. 
So we're going to look at her song in three parts. She's going to remind us of three things that frame up the whole Bible. Number one, the story of David, the story of the Old Testament, the story of First and Second Samuel is a story about God and his mission. It's not first and foremost about David and Samuel and Saul and the heroes and the villains in the story. Um, we're going to read about really crazy people in this story. There's going to be cameos from people like the Witch of Endor, which is like the weirdest part of the Old Testament. Right? We're going to read about warriors. We're going to read about cowards. We're going to read about tricksters. We're going to read about wise women and wise men and foolish women and foolish men. But what Hannah says in the opening of her song is this. This is not a story about heroes and villains. This is a story about God. Look what she says, starting in verse 2. Or sorry, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him, actions are weighed. Listen, here's what she's saying. The God of this story is not the God of the deists. The deists believe in a God that creates the world and then he's like an absentee landlord. He's the uncaused cause, but he's not really involved in history. In our cultural moment, most Americans believe in that kind of God. That number one, he wants you to be happy. He's not really involved in your life. He's not really a God that you need to figure out how to interact with. If you throw up a Hail Mary prayer, he might help you in a time of need, but he really is sort of just a means to an end. You can tap him if you want to tap him. You can ignore him if you want to ignore him. You can relate to the God of most Americans on your own terms. And what Hannah is saying is actually the God that this story is pointing to is not a God that you can ignore or belittle or use to tell your own story. This is the God that's shaping history, that's raising up and he's lowering This is a story about him. And I need you to get this, man. We live in this crazy cultural moment where we're all being influenced to relate to God as if we were the center of our story. It's about me and my dreams and my desires and my pain and my aspirations and my ambitions. And to the degree that God can fit in with what I want and what I'm doing, I'll tap him to the degree that he doesn't fit in. I'll ignore him. And I just want you to get this. The whole Bible is a glaring, flashing red light saying, that's not God. The God of the Bible is fiercely holy and fiercely personal. And to the degree that our story gets plugged into his story, it's going to have substance, weight, and beauty to the degree that we wrongly think that we're the supporting, we're the main cast member of our little movie and God is a supporting cast member. To that degree, you're going to miss the point of life. Listen, and some of us in this room right now, we are absolutely being crushed under the weight of our own stories. You can't support the losses that are accumulating. You can't support the ambition that hasn't come through. You can't support 
the ability to just keep going forward as if you have control over who you're going to be and where you're going to go. And what this story does is it reminds us, listen, God is not to be related to on your own terms. God is to be related to on his own terms. And in that shift, in that shift, there's actually a whole lot of joy and beauty. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. Um, Lewis described himself as the most unwilling convert in all of England. Like he just, he just got subdued by God kicking and screaming. And he wrote this about his testimony in his book, Miracles. Let me read it to you. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceeded no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him, we never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he found us. Hey, listen, the story of the life of David is not the story of people seeking and finding God. It's the story of God pursuing, God revealing, God lifting, God lowering. It's the story where God is the prime mover. He's the alpha and the omega of this story. And I just want to say, he's inviting you and me to see him as the alpha and the omega of our own story which redeems the dark parts and gives hope in the shadows. It gives context to the mountaintops. It creates worship and hope in the midst of suffering. When God is the center of our story, our stories can actually have a substance and a weight to them that can navigate what it is to be a human being. Hannah is right. This is a story about God and what he is doing. Secondly, Hannah wants us to get that this is a story about reversals. First and second Samuel is all about reversals, and really the whole Bible is all about reversals. Look at verse 2. The bows of the mighty are broken, the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren's born seven, she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on him he set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Listen, this whole story is going to be about radical reversals. This is a story that begins with a guy named Eli the priest who has power and training and office, 
being brought low and a little boy named Samuel becoming a more holy priest figure even as a child. This is the story of desperate people being met in their desperation. This is a story of the proud and the haughty being brought low. This is a story where God doesn't rescue because of greater technology or greater force of arms. This is a story where he uses the few to defeat the many. This is a story where God kills a giant with the best technology of the day through a little shepherd boy with a slingshot. This is a story, this is a story where every time Saul trusts in numbers and in strength and in money, he's brought low. And every time the people of God humble themselves and trust in God's power and God's might and God's strength, they're lifted up. Listen, that's the story of the Bible. Grace, grace is that God doesn't help those who help themselves. Grace is that God helps those that can't help themselves. Grace is God meeting you in your desperation. Grace is God giving strength and help to the humble. Grace is not pretending like you have the strength to do it on your own. Grace is the humility to know that your best efforts at strength are insufficient for the world that we live in. Grace is about reversals. So listen, this is a story where anybody who's willing to bend and bow, God is willing to lift. And anybody that wants to exalt themselves in their own eyes or in the eyes of the nation or before God, like they have something to boast in, is going to be humbled. And I want you to get this. This is really important. The whole story of God coming for us in Jesus is not the story of human self-betterment. It's not the story of the best people in the world being brought together to be God's all-star super dream team. The story of the gospel is that if you know you're sinful, if you're broken, if you're weak, if you're hungry, if you're naked, if you don't know even how to lift up your head and pray like a Pharisee, but you're just beating your breast saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here's what you can expect to find in the person and work of Jesus. Mercy. And I just want to say today, man, like it's so easy to start the Christian life with grace and in humility and in desperation and need and before long start to believe our own press that we've done this on our own. To look down on others, to forget that God hears the prayers of people in dark places. My prayer for this church, one of my many prayers, I pray for you guys a lot. One of my many prayers for Frontline South is that this would be a congregation where the reversals of the gospel become so astronomically common and shocking that nobody but Jesus would get the credit. I pray that the worst marriages find help here. I pray that the, the people in our city that are the most desperate find refuge and hope in the gospel here. I pray, I pray that this would be a congregation where infamous sinners in South OKC, I'm talking pimps and prostitutes and dealers and wife beaters. I'm talking about people that are horrible, awful people. 
could experience the reversal of grace where because the blood of Jesus that was shed in their place, they can be given a new identity and a new hope. And I pray that this would be a congregation where the people of God never start to think that it was their strength or their cunning or their morality that brought them into the family of God. My prayer is that this would just be a church that just screams grace every time we get together. That we would receive grace and be formed by grace and run in the grace of God. So listen, Hannah's doing good theology here. She's saying, look, this is not a story about David. This is a story about God. This is a story about God. And this is not a story about human strength and power and intellect. It's a story about reversals. And this is lastly, not just a story about those things, but, but finally, this is a story about the Christ. Hannah is the first person in the Old Testament to prophesy a Christ, an anointed one. Look what she says in verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed or his Christ. See, listen, there's more written about King David than any other person in the Bible except for Jesus. David is really important. He's really strategic. God is doing something profound in David. But listen, though David is going to be a little C Christ in this story, he's going to be a king that's anointed by the Spirit of God. Though David is going to be a little C Christ, the thing that makes David so profound and important is that he's pointing way beyond himself, both in his successes and in his failures to the ultimate son of David, which is how Jesus liked to refer to himself, the ultimate son of David, who would be the one who would come, anointed by the Spirit of God, to be God's chosen king, to rule and reign in this world. This is a story about Jesus. It's a story about Jesus. And what I want you to get, man, is the invitation to all of us in this room is to realize that though we're going to have some great practical stuff in this story, like there's some amazing stuff about wisdom and leadership and warfare, like we're going to walk through all that. There's going to be practical stuff about battling temptation. There's going to be amazing, amazing invitations to grow in our virtue as, as people. But at the very core of this story, man, the very core of the story is that it's preparing us to see Jesus more fully his rule, his reign, his power. So this is a moment where we want to respond to God's word in prayer. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes for a second. Your life is a story, but who's the center of that story? Do you think it's all up to you? That's going to crush you. Do you think that God is a supporting cast member that you can tap in when convenient? That is not the story. Where do you right now, where do you right now need to have a gospel reversal in your life? Where do you need to boast in your weakness so that the strength of Christ can be shown forth? Where do you need to humble yourself and ask for help? It's so crazy that the whole Christian life is a life of reversals where God lifts up the broken, the needy from the ash heap. And then all of a sudden we start thinking that like we can't ask for help. 
That's crazy. Or that we have to pretend to be better off than what we are, that's crazy. Where do you need a gospel reversal today? Where do you need to remember that the whole story is about Jesus? He died in your place. He rose for your justification. He is your pastor interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. He is the king that fights the battles of God. He's the one that comes to the aid of those that call on him. He sees you. He hears you. He opens his hands to you afresh today. He's willing again today to give you the gift of faith and repentance. He's willing again today to hear your prayers. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother to the lonely. He's a mighty warrior that causes demons and principalities and powers to retreat in terror. He is truth. He is comfort. Jesus, would you come today? Glorify your Father in our lives. Teach us and form us and heal us.